Hello once again, or maybe for the first time, and welcome to Art Fictions, bringing you stories of art and the art of stories. I'm Gillian Knipe. As well as being an artist, I'm the creator and producer of this podcast. The intention of Art Fictions is to talk alongside artistic practice and to describe the work indirectly through the lens of literature as a way of getting to the heart of ideas which drive contemporary practice. Today's episode is hosted by author and critic Elizabeth Fullerton, who welcomes guest artist, researcher, author and academic Susan Shupley. Together they'll be talking about dissolving boundaries, plausible deniability, beached whales, deep time, gathering poems, chattering glaciers, fetus ownership, critical proximity, living on ice, images creating barriers, Princess Diana's wedding dress, bodies eating distance and changing paradigms as well as questioning where environmental knowledge resides and which modes of representation might inspire action. Speaking of action, should you feel the urge to give feedback, ask questions, or if you just want to say hi, then please email artfictionspodcast at gmail.com. Also, of course, please rate and comment, which is a critical help for other people to find the podcast. For now, let's hear from Elizabeth and Susan. Welcome to Art Fiction Season. Elizabeth, it's great to be here and uh, spend time discussing a book that I find incredibly uh, compelling. Well, for our discussion today, you've chosen the book The Second Body by Daisy Hilliard, Mm -hmm. published by Fitzcarraldo, which is always a good sign. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Um, So the premise behind The Second Body is that we all have our own individual corporeal body made of flesh and bone, and then a second, more nebulous body that basically amounts to the entire impact that the first body has on the rest of the planet in terms of its actions. So, for instance, how we have a relationship to a pod of beached whales or how turning on a toaster might affect people in Bangladesh. When a river floods in her home in Yorkshire, the two bodies come together in a sense. In her quest to understand and explain the relationship between the two bodies, Daisy Hilliard meets a variety of people, from a butcher in Yorkshire to an environmental criminologist to different biologists and reveals just how porous the boundaries are between us and the rest of life on Earth. So let's start by finding out, Susan, why you chose the book. Well, I chose the book for all of the reasons in some way that you've already signaled, which is the ways in which Daisy manages to study connections, because I think that is actually one of the most challenging things to do. How do we connect our hyper kind of localized experiences, our domesticated encounters to the sort of planetary infrastructures, to logistical supply chains, extractivist economies? But she does that not so much as, it's not a call to action, I would say. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of reflective inquiry that's propelled by asking questions, and that really um, resonates with me. How do we find out the things that we need to know? Where do we go? Who do we need to sort of speak to? But she's also a beautiful writer, and I I love the way that she crafts sentences. They're not overly dramatic. There's a kind of economy of language that I really appreciate. And when people are talking about the climate crisis, there's often a kind of dramatic mode that inflects the kind of language around climate catastrophe, extinction rebellion, 
but Daisy uses a different kind of linguistic approach, I would say. Like her prose is very domesticated. Yeah. That really appeals to me. But at the same time, she is able to conjure these incredible images in our minds because she puts together these really incommensurate realities, right? And events, you know. It's a kind of real skill to move across these registers and scales. Yeah. That, yeah. I, I would, that I also sort of aspire to in my kind of own uh, creative practice. Uh-huh. I mean, I love the expanded ways of thinking about the world that she has because she teaches literature, English literature at university level, mm-hmm. but she studied history of science and, and she thinks across disciplines, which you do, of course, obviously as well. And I really like how in the book she brings in really mundane examples. And then she also talks about Macbeth. And I thought it was really interesting how she was saying how Macbeth thinks he's safe because the witches have foretold that he won't be defeated until Burnham Wood moves to Dunstanane. But then the troops cut down the trees from the wood as camouflage and march on his castle. So there's this idea all the way through, she's connecting the idea that human bodies affect or connect to things that seem to have no relation to them. Mm -hmm. But then it just needs, as she says, a leap of imagination to make that link, Mm -hmm. right? She finds these, I think, very precise entry points. So, for example, one of the things that Daisy talked about in this short essay that she wrote was Princess Diana's wedding, but it was from the vantage point of the thousands and thousands of pearls that were embroidered into the wedding dress and to understand uh, mm-hmm. like their sort of life cycle. And it was this really fascinating material analysis of the wedding and all of the ways in which that wedding itself was inextricably interconnected to a whole set of global processes, many of which had very profound ecological effects. But she begins with these thousands of little pearls that have been obviously scavenged from the deep and somehow through some sort of global supply chain have made it into an atelier within then get stitched into this glorious sort of wedding dress yeah in that sense it was sort of situated that dress that wedding that moment in a much broader geopolitical kind of history isn't that crazy i love the idea almost like telling the story from the point of view of small tiny material things Or seemingly insignificant. Yeah, and a wedding that was watched across the world by millions and millions and millions, Mm -hmm. and then that dissolved. And so what was the point of those pearls in the first place on that dress? You know, Mm -hmm. was that so vital that all those pearl divers had to go and get those pearls? Yeah, it's those strange connections. I, I was reading some reviews, and some reviewers found her connections too random. I really liked them because I think it is really hard for people to get fired up about things that just seem so hopeless and so huge and so engulfing that, you know, often I think, like you say, that really dramatic language of crisis and emergency sometimes puts people off because it makes them feel powerless. And she kind of just brings it home with this second body idea. She talks at one point about how language is so weak. I'm going to read this little passage here. I think it's where she says... This second body is your own literal and physical, biological existence. It is a version of you. It is not a concept, it's your own body. The language we have at the moment is weak. We might speak vaguely of global connections. 
of the emission and circulation of gases, of impacts, and yet at some microscopic or intangible scale, bodies are breaking into one another. The concept of a global impact is not working for us, mm -hmm. and in the meantime, your body has already eaten the distance. Your first body could be sitting alone in a church in the centre of Marseille, but your second body is floating above a pharmaceutical plant on the outskirts of the city. It is inside a freight container in the docks, and it's also thousands of miles away on a floodplain in Bangladesh, in another man's lungs. It is understandably difficult to remember that you have anything to do with this second body. Your first body is the body you inhabit in your daily life. However, you are alive in both. You have two bodies. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. Yeah, in another passage, which is similar, she talks about the abstractions of language, but also we could say the abstractions of the kinds of visualization of climate data. We've all seen the Keeling curve with the exponential rise of greenhouse gases. You can see that line, and that line is an absolute indictment of human activity. At the same time, what do we do with that abstraction or consensus building that is trying to determine whether we forge ahead with an accepted one to two degree kind of temperature rise? That's an abstraction for many people, but it's not an abstraction for people who, as Adrian LaHood has written in one of his essays, is a de facto death sentence for some communities. So at that moment, the abstraction has a kind of concrete reality. And I do think the weakness of language that she's identified is also, it's like, what are the modes of representation that can somehow transform our actions and how do you take the information that a climate scientist offers through their research findings and translate between these different kinds of realms of experience but also realms of expertise right yeah yeah and so i think this is where artists writers journalists you know people who can pass through some of that technical scientific speak and kind of make a legible story in a way mm -hmm. for the wider population. I think that's where that comes in or how that's really helpful. Definitely with Daisy, I think she does that really interestingly. Mm -hmm. Another thing I, I found really interesting where she talks about, I think it was the impact of when you first had access to images of the earth from, from space. Earthrise, yeah. yeah, from Earthrise, exactly. And she said, and it had two effects. And one effect was that people saw how fragile and how small the earth was mm -hmm. and thought, oh my God, we've got to really preserve this planet. Look how small it is and look how tiny those forests and those you know, rivers are, etc. And then on the other hand, you had a whole other strand of approaches saying, oh, we are so independent. You know, we're superhuman. We can look down on the earth and that we are this race that's able to photograph it from above. So we're not part of it. That's just one of many planets and we should go out and conquer more. And, and that's a kind of scary approach because obviously that's where you're getting climate deniers and people who are not taking it that seriously. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a very sort of iconic image, and it is often used as saying it sort of spawned the environmental movement. And just as an, an interesting anecdote, the same year that that gets taken is the first time an image of the fetus appears on Life magazine. Oh, wow. And the discourse was actually surprisingly similar about this sort of like sacred orb in need of protection. The feminist analysis of that moment where this image really propels all of the debates around reproductive rights. Feminists have said that what that moment inaugurates is the kind of maternal body that gets separated from the body of the child and the, the mother is actually at that moment seen as the major threat to the survival of the fetus. I'm always interested in how images then change paradigms. They transform yes. the ways that we think about the world. Yeah. So with the, are you saying that with the um, fetus, it became suddenly something that society needed to intervene in to protect uh, against the woman? So it no longer was her own charge, but it became, it's our fetus. Yeah, it was societies, the medical industry, oh. if you will, or the me- at least the medical community. So yeah. the fetus then becomes an object that is separate from the maternal body. Yeah. What's erased in that image of the fetus on the cover of Life magazine is we don't see the woman anywhere because the, the camera, the technology has entered into the body and has produced an image of the fetus as separate and distinct. Daisy's whole book is in some way trying to grapple with this partitioning of this world, these separations yes. and distinctions, yeah. and to dissolve those boundaries. But we can really see how these kinds of images have in some way been fundamental to Uh, setting up those uh, barriers. Yeah, it came up a lot though in, um, have you read Caliban and the Witch by Sylvia Federico? I mean, just bits and pieces because it's a book that our students are continually engaging with, yeah. Yeah, because that talks about from it being a, a female domain with midwives and ancient knowledge about women's bodies and mm-hmm. stuff, suddenly men intervened and they decided that male doctors had to take control over the woman's reproduction and mm-hmm. the child's future. And the midwives got edged out, so she talks a lot about that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but it's a really interesting analogy anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned the idea of the fetus and the globe from above. So. Yeah, I mean, they have a similar sort of spatial morphology. You, if you look mm-hmm. at those kind of images, it looks like the fetus is floating in some sort of cosmos. It makes sense that Stanley Kubrick used that kind of image, right, in 2001. Yeah, yeah. He's actually in some way, he's mediating these two different images through that film, right? Yes. Yeah, and of course, I mean, but he's also doing that deliberately with the um, image of the man with the bone, then uh, connects to the whole idea of the heroism of male struggle for survival. It's a fascinating moment. I know we're digressing a little bit for Daisy's book, but it's wonderful when a writer's work becomes a touchstone for some yeah. many kind of evolving conversations. And also Ursula Le Guin brings it up in um, The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction. Mm. She also makes the point that while the men were busy with their bones and weapons and whatever, actually women are busy making carriers for seeds and that's mm-hmm. actually as important as the, the big strong ape with the bone and the weapons and the stick but yeah we're digressing but why don't you um but fascinating i'm enjoying it but why don't you read us your passage yeah Yeah, i would love to do that and just to say that um something we're sort of circulating around as an idea in our discussion is 
what I would sort of call critical proximity. And I think Daisy is also trying to grapple with that. It's not just a question as the sort of early environmental movement put it in terms of like acting locally, thinking kind of globally. Like she's obviously arguing that we're always acting both globally and locally, not just simply a question of like, do I cycle to work instead of taking a bus? Do I take a train instead of an airplane? It's this kind of like, how is it that we can develop um, an acute sense of critical proximity, mm. which is a bit different than just having an awareness and consciousness of our everyday habits and local actions. So I'll just read this passage on page 11. The things I know to be true in an abstract sense, satellite images, shots of chromosomes, hydrocarbon spreadsheets, they don't always feel real. Meanwhile, the real fleshy living bodies going about their business, cleaning their kitchens or trying to get at their seed, falling off their buckets, they don't feel like they have much to do with the complicated truth about what is happening to life on earth. I find it hard to make myself much interested in this truth. It feels far off. I don't want to hear stories about climate change or the biosphere. I want to hear about real people and real creatures. But there's a sense that the sky is getting dark and the horizon is moving nearer, that I should be paying attention. Because one day, the distant ice shelf will come ripping through the tissue of my body, through everybody, even if it appears for now that the bodies all around me are intact. And this definitely, specifically connects with your most recent projects um, around ice. Can you talk about a bit about those synergies? I remember when I first read that passage in, I can't say I like shuddered, but it was this kind of moment of pause, right? Because I wow. connected specifically to this kind of image of this ice sheet hurling itself towards us. But um, for many years, I've been working on a, a research project, but also a creative project called Learning from Ice. Uh, I've recently completed a documentary feature called Listening to Ice, but that's all within this sort of framework of learning from ice, which has really propelled me on my own journey to learn about the different knowledge practices, different practices of caring for glaciers, but different ways in which communities, scientists, grassroots organizations interact with work on ice, live on ice. It's been a project to try to understand where does environmental knowledge reside. So for example, when I was in Ladakh a few years ago, working on the Listening to Ice documentary, we also encountered an elderly man who was a song collector in Lay, Marup Namagayal is his name, and he had been uh, traveling throughout the region since about the 1960s, gathering poems and folk songs about mountains, rivers, glaciers, Aww. and streams. And he opened up his archive to us, and it was really quite um, a shambolic archive, if you will, sort of a, a cupboard full of tiny scraps of paper uh, mm -hmm. that were literally falling apart. And there was a real kind of poignancy, I remember, um, in that encounter because He's elderly. These songs have largely been lost, and his memory, his capacity to sing those songs is also disappearing. The landscapes that he was singing about, those are also undergoing dramatic change. Those glaciers are melting. 
they're disappearing. The life worlds that he was familiar with are also perishing. What I found really significant about our encounter with Maru was really clear that knowledge about environmental change was written into these stories, but it wasn't called what climate change. Yeah. It syncs up to the way that sort of Daisy is writing because it's about trying to understand these changes, but maybe all maybe through a kind of different register than yeah. the one in which we say, oh, we're going to call this climate change or we're going to call this global warming, but it's how all of the activities of everyday life are also undergoing change, and people are very aware of those changes because in many cases their lives are completely kind of reliant on what is happening. But the ways in which those changes being are being communicated are being accounted for are not always through the kind of the conventional modes of expression and language like ecological politics if you will yeah and also um what i liked in your documentary was you have all these scientists and that's fascinating in this incredibly dramatic stunning ladakh landscape and you know these sweeping mountains or snow peaks and this arid arid valleys and and you're listening with the scientists to glacial ice so you're in these in incredible natural environments and then you invite local villagers from um, who are most affected obviously by these changes to the glaciers and they're listening they're really fascinated aren't they by technology of this ability to listen to mm -hmm. ice and they're and making it have meaning for them in ways they can relate to mm -hmm. That was a really kind of incredible experience was working with the villagers from Aksha that we brought to Drangdrung Glacier for these workshops. It's very different from, say, the Canadian Arctic, where glacial recession in relationship to human communities may not be about water management, but it definitely is in India or in the areas that I was in. So the glaciers are the source of drinking waters, uh, water for um, agriculture, etc. So there's a, a very strong kind of relationship there, but at the same time, we, the women are saying we've never been on the glacier, and then lowering these hydrophones into the crevices, into the molines, they're completely enthralled with the sort of subterranean worlds of ice. But then the way that they were describing that was very um, familiar was like the sound of boiling tea or the whirring of a helicopter overhead. Yes. And I thought that was really fantastic. It brought the ice back into their life world, and it's their life world that is undergoing change. And it was, it was a really nice kind of like counterpoint to the more technical modes of listening that we were doing for the purposes of, say, a, a scientific survey to understand glacial dynamics, which in some way would never then be reconnected back to one's daily lived experience. It's and very daily, Daisy Hilliard in a way. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It's also for me a little bit like, um, I don't know if you know the work of Chantal Ackerman, the yes, filmmaker, because yeah. she really focuses on the sort of minor dramas of the everyday. Mm. And I, I think Daisy... Chantal Ackerman's work, but also what we are trying to do in some way is to step back from the sort of major mode of climate catastrophe and really have 
conversations with affected communities learn from their kind of experiences and that's why there's a lot of laughter in the the film yeah and i have to say it some people were put off by that when i did a screening really in the netherlands because they said but you're dealing with like this really important issue of climate change and there's laughter oh no but how could that sometimes laughter is you know it's such a political tool as well it's such an important way of getting through to people but it was more the fact that i think there's a tendency sometimes when artists work on um, issues related say to glacial recession to be operating in this sort of melancholic mode but i think what was really affirming in in working with the communities was how important it is to create experiences and also to think about trying to create some sort of understanding of what was at stake for us scientifically, bringing people into that world, not just telling people this is what we're doing, this is why it's important, which tends to be the way that climate science communicates. Yes, exactly. But also... um... I did want to ask you if you could say something about, because I thought it was so interesting, again, this idea of the dialogue with the environment rather than just being told. When you, in the film, you have a really wonderful guy who makes ice stupas. It would be great if you could explain what that actually is. He also has a really nice moment in the film where he's talking about how the ice speaks back. Yeah, absolutely. When we had finished the work at Dreindrung Glacier, we went on to Ley, which is also in Ladakh, and we met an environmentalist, Misha Tiku is his name, and he's the project coordinator of something called the Ice Stupa Project. And the Stupa is a religious um, architecture mm-hmm. in uh, that part of the world. So we, we you'd also see the sort of white dome-like shapes that yes. sort of populate the landscape. Of Ladakh, but you'd also see in in Tibet as well. Yeah, it's related to Buddhism, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. a Buddhist uh, yeah. religious architecture. Mm. And so the Ice Stupa is a project to build artificial glaciers. I mean, it's a little bit controversial in the world of glaciology and climate science. One of the reasons that the Ice Stupa project has been developed is because glaciers are melting too soon. So when the sowing season is supposed to happen, the glacial melt has already taken place. And so there's no water for purposes of agriculture. And so artificial glaciers, and there's many different kinds, but uh, the ice stupa is a very compelling one because it also produces these really strange sort of organic looking kind of massive ice architectures. And villagers build these and you build them with sort of straw, with bamboo, and then you're sort of hosing this infrastructure or this internal architecture with water from local streams and it's freezing and you're basically trying to create a massive body of ice as a frozen water reserve so that yeah. that can melt and produce many millions of liters of water much later on, say in May, when it might be needed, rather than if it's melting in, say, February or March, that's too early. So mm-hmm. it's a way to store water in a frozen state. The Ice Stupa project has been um, developed there, and then there's also been attempts to grow artificial glaciers using this method in South America and Switzerland and different places that are experiencing recession of glaciers. 
that when Nishat was talking about it, he's also saying that a shtup is a, is a religious and spiritual structure, and it's also the way that they understand water itself. At one point, I asked him about whether he'd had any experiences of acoustics in the work that he was doing with the communities in relationship to ice. And I said a little bit about our project is called Listening to Ice. And he says, of course, because ice talks, talks yeah. a lot, but it's up to us whether we can hear it and really listen to it and sort of heed what it's sort of saying. And it was a really beautiful kind of moment. And I sort of closed the film with that his sort of reflection on the ways in which ice speaks to us, but the reciprocal demand that it makes on us to listen and sort of pay attention and then heed in some way um, its chattering, if you will. Yeah. yeah, it's one of those kind of moments in interviews, isn't it, where you just think, bingo, wow. <laughs> you know, it's totally unplanned. You don't know what he's going to say. And then he comes out with this extraordinary, beautiful phrase and you think, wow, this is fantastic. So, yeah, I love that winding off your film with that. It was, it was really, really, I think, powerful. So Susan, you're an artist researcher and writer whose work examines material evidence from war and conflict to environmental disasters and climate change. And your films Material Witness and Can the Sun Lie looked at ways in which non-human entities like the landscape and the sun become witnesses in trials and tribunals testifying to incidences of political violence, genocide, and other war crimes. Your recent work, though, has taken a more environmental focus, exploring ways that ecological changes caused by global warming are generating new types of evidence, creating what you've described as a planetary archive of material witnesses. Your work has been shown in numerous exhibitions and biennials around the world, including the Berlin Biennale, the Toronto Biennial of Art, and in Bergen-Kunsthal in Norway and the Sculpture Centre in New York, to mention just a few. We've talked a little bit about the listening to ice, but I wonder if you could also maybe start by telling us a bit more about your project around cold rights. I think this is such a brilliant idea. Basically, Susan is thinking about the rights of ice not to be broken up by ships, for instance, searching for oil in the Arctic or staking territorial claims, as well as the rights of, say, indigenous communities in the region to preserve their cold habitat from destruction. No, absolutely. So um, in developing the sort of learning from ice project, one of the things I wasn't dealing with explicitly was politics of temperature and I felt I until I wanted to open up a chapter if you will in my practice that delved very directly into kind of into questions of justice was less about like learning and my journey in developing these various glacier-based projects so the cold rights takes its lead from the provocative claim entitled of Sheila Wakluche's book, The Right to Be Cold. And at one point, she put forward a claim along with the 62 members of her Inuit community to the Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights in the United States. And it was a petition that sought relief and accountability basically for 
the greenhouse gas emissions, etc., from Canada and the U.S., but the petition was denied. It was overturned. And um, in making that petition, the argument that was put forward was that Indigenous life worlds are inextricably being shattered by global warming. When the petition was denied, they said we can't connect a human rights violation to a set of changes in the environment. But suffice to say that when Inuit activist Sheila Watt-Cloutier um, put forward this petition, then the popular imagination, that petition came to be known as the right to be cold. And in my earlier work in The Material Witness, which was also, it was both a documentary and a book, but I'm really looking at a, a number of legal trials and tribunals and really looking at the ways in which violations, whether they're human rights violations or environmental infractions, how they've interacted with the legal forms that have, say, been set up to provide some sort of accountability in relationship to these arms. In many cases, they fail, as we, as we well know. And so starting to think about cold rights is really moving from the world of law to thinking about justice. And justice and law on the law are two very separate domains. Mm -hmm. The law can met out punishment, it can pass judgment, but it's not set up to produce justice. I'm also interested in the fact that the word justice itself is composed of the word ice. Just yes. ice. So what might a just conception of ice be? I say that also sometimes hearing the phrase when an icebreaker breaks through the ice sheets in the Arctic to open up a new transportation artery, the response might be, well, that's just ice. Yeah. So cold rights is really delving into a number of these different kinds of questions around justice, ice, the right to be cold, and what does that mean? What does that look like? Because I realize so much of the discussions around climate change tend to focus on warming and mm. what's happening in the, say, in maybe more in the global south, in more sort of thermal or heat-based geographies. And mm. so um, part of the, the impetus behind a project like Cold Rights is also to look at the ways in which um, cold is reorganizing uh, certain geopolitical and sovereignty campaigns. Yeah, I found that shocking in your film where presumably that's found footage or that you have from, I don't know, a government body or something, but under the ice, that crazy shot of the diver planting the Canadian flag under the ice, so in freezing water, to stake some sort of sovereignty claim there, presumably fending off other claims mm -hmm. and also the, those shots of snowmobiles which I thought originally oh maybe those are indigenous people on their snowmobiles in these huge white wastes of land no they were Canadian patrollers who felt they have to keep patrolling the the land to again state the territorial claim one of the officers he says this is our land and so it's clear what he's saying when he means our land, he means Canadian land. He's not talking about the land of uh, First Nations communities or, indi or indigenous communities, rather. You know, this our land, and in order to, we need to protect our land, and therefore we need to occupy the land. And so 
in those three sort of short sentences when he's talking about these snowmobile patrols in the north, the language is completely this language of military occupation, yes. of property relationships, mm. right, and governance over the land. And so we really see the ways in which the state has utilized people and land in the north for these geopolitical and also military campaigns. And that is certainly the case in Canada, who's very keen to extend sovereignty rights in the north vis-a-vis perceived or possibly real incursions from Russia at one point. Mm. Very much also relocated uh, Inuit communities and youth communities Mm. as human shields against these perceived um, threat of foreign incursion and that is all happening against the backdrop of extractivist expansion and economic activities, right? Because with the sort of diminishing of ice and the opening up of the Arctic for new transportation routes, you're also opening up access to oil and gas reserves, for example. So that's what this uh, rather short video called rights is really trying to manage all of these different elements. Um, and, and the need for care. And the need care for care, for protecting yeah. the ice. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. The work that I'm doing now is much more about thinking about cold rights within a warming world and different notions of justice. So the idea that we have to think justice climactically, this is also something I sort of borrow a little bit from Christina Sharp, who talks about racism as a weather system, as mm-hmm. an all-encompassing climate. And similarly, the justice needs to have a sort of climactic horizon. The law can only ever deal with very specific incidents. It can't deal with, say, enabling structures Mm. or, you know, structural racisms, for example. Moving away from the sort of legal framework to a kind of justice-based framework in relationship to cold specifically has sort of opened up a whole set of um, projects in which I've looked at the ways in which coals has been weaponized. Yes. You know, and that's a, a series of works called Coal Cases. Yes, please tell us about those. I've been completely fascinated since you first mentioned it, and I've watched three of those films. I don't know if there are more, but on the weaponization of temperature, mm-hmm. and it's really shocking how it's so invidious the ways authorities and states have harnessed cold as a weapon against civilians. So yes, there's three cases, each of which deals with the ways in which temperature has become part of a kind of clandestine uh, practice of policing. That was certainly the case in Canada. So the first case that I dealt with, which was called freezing deaths, was looking at the ways in which uh, authorities and police in Canada who took First Nations, largely men, into custody. And if you take someone into police custody, you need to be logging who they are. You need to take them into the station. There's a duty of care um, if that person is, for example, ill, or even if they need to be taken into detox. You don't drive them to the outskirts of town, which happened time and time again, drop them off in the middle of the night and hope that they walk back. Or not hope. Or not hope. No, exactly. This practice in Canada became known as taking someone on a starlight tour. I was recently approached by a a journalist working for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation who had been speaking to a man who had been dropped off last year. 
No. So this is not a historic, it's a historic practice, but it's a practice that continues to this day, completely clandestine. Police forces will say, well, that was just the actions of a few bad apples. In producing the work, I really tried to map out a, a pattern and a system of abuse over many Since decades. the 70s has been recorded. But also, let's just talk about the temperatures we're talking about. This isn't like, I mean, in London, it would be bad in the winter because it's cold, but you would have a higher chance of surviving. But we're talking about really freezing cold temperatures, aren't we? I mean, um, we are in most cases. Um, it could be minus 30 Celsius with wind chill, which is very common in the winter in Canada. Yeah. But for example, Frank Joseph Paul died on the streets of Vancouver. It was raining, but he was extremely ill, extremely intoxicated thrown into an alley. This is a much more recent case. He died four hours after having been taken into police custody of hypothermia, but the temperature that was like was actually hovering above zero. But when people are drenched, yeah. when you're soaking wet and the temperature drops, that is how hypothermia starts to sort of seep in and close down to your organs. So Wet clothing really exacerbates temperature differentials, so you don't mm -hmm. actually need to be in like sub-zero temperature to, to die. And outside. as a deliberate clandestine strategy, no, absolutely. basically for eliminating so-called problem that they would saw on the streets. It's so shocking that that could be a repeating pattern even now that those cases haven't been brought to justice. See, what happens is, how do you prove that the police officers who took that person into custody did that intentionally and knew that the nighttime temperatures were going to drop and that that person might die? Legally, it's called plausible deniability. I mean, first of all, it's actually illegal to take somebody into custody and not log who you've taken into your police cruiser. Yeah. If you've taken someone into custody, and abandoned them and they die, there's no record that they were ever in the police car and there's no record that you ever uh. brought them to the outskirts of town. That person is found and there might be an inquest and a determination that this person died of hypothermia. You can't necessarily connect the dots. It's only presumably then when someone actually survives that, that, exactly. that how we know that it's, that's a practice that's so, ongoing. Exactly, and it took the testimony of survivors, of which there are a few. In one case, these two brothers were threatened by the police and said, we're going to take you on a starlight tour. They actually used the term, but the survivors could tell the story of their harrowing experience. And in the case of Saskatchewan, which is a smallish city in the prairies of Canada, where the police were dropping off, people was always more or less the same sort of location. So mm -hmm. Daryl Knight, who survives, is also dropped off in the same place. And he talks about, because there was three deaths within a period of like one month. And at that point, he decides to come forward and say, well, I had the same experience. Oh my God. And so this is how it came to, let's say, the public's attention. It was the same thing that happened at Standing Rock when the police used water hoses on protesters. That's another of your films, isn't it? Yes, it's yeah. another case. It's obviously much more recent. You know, weaponizing water against water protectors. But once again, the authorities said we had no clue that it would say going to get so cold and that 300 people would be afflicted with hypothermia. 
you know, I've talked to lawyers in the U.S. subsequent to um, these cases because I wanted to know, like, what's the relationship of law to temperature? And they're mm. saying, well, there's actually very little that's ever been done in investigating the role of temperature as part of the kind of tools of policing. Yeah. There's not a, a body of sort of legal cases that have been able to grapple with temperature because it is a kind of, it's an ambient condition, but also people experience temperature very differently. Mm. So women experience temperature differently than men because of our biological differences. If you're in poor health, uh, you will also succumb, say, to cold temperatures much more easily than someone in, who's in very good health. So mm. there's a whole range of factors it's something that's A, not regulated, but it's also hard to understand how temperature interacts with materials, bodies, environments. Mm. It's been kind of legally kind of elusive. But what I wanted to say um, was that one of the lawyers said, all that aside, at the end of the day, how does a police officer who's living in Saskatchewan or North Dakota, they have situated knowledge, they're living there, surely they must know what it means like to be out in the cold yeah. you know, at night. Plausible deniability, that's not a convincing enough argument, even though it is used time and time again. It's very convenient, isn't it? But if you just imagine yourself in someone else's shoes, which obviously these police officers are not doing at all, but like that situation with the protesters, the water protesters that you were talking about, being drenched by these huge water hoses, freezing water in icy cold temperatures they drench their campfires the protesters mm -hmm. campfires so there's no access to warmth there's no real escape and i'm surprised that there weren't more hypothermia cases and obviously those police officers are there they're experiencing how cold it is anyway so you can't possibly argue really that you didn't understand that adding cold water into that mix onto the protesters is not going to be dangerous to their health. They were saying that they were using water that wasn't deliberately made cold, but the minute that clothing gets drenched, immediately the temperature starts to drop. Yeah. So the authorities, which is Morton County Sheriff, was really arguing that they barely used the water hoses, but actually all of the um, footage that we worked with in this case I worked with forensic architecture on modeling these three cold cases and it was clear that there's something like over 70 deliberate uses of the water hose because the authorities were saying we just used them to put out the campfires because we thought the campfires were a hazard. Yeah, but right. And 70 uses isn't just a couple of, you know, we're just putting out some fires. No, you know. so you, we can really see the kind of willful use of this water. As a weapon. As a weapon, yeah, yeah absolutely. And then uh, the third case deals with icebox detention along the U.S.-Mexico border. And that's different again because now temperature in the case of, say, prison systems or detention centers does have a kind of legal framework. So by law, temperatures in those holding cells, this is for migrants um, moving across the border from, say, South America, Latin America, into the United States, there is a kind of standardized temperature. But the point is that migrants have their long sleeve clothing removed because that's 
seen to be a potential suicide risk. And so they're sleeping on these cold concrete floors with minimal sort of clothing. The guards are, of course, completely kitted out in yeah. jackets, etc. They're fine, but there's multiple witness accounts through the sort of human rights organizations that have gathered witness testimony and how cold it is and how the guards, they were threatening to turn down temperature. And Which is illegal, actually. Yeah, they it? were yeah. turning down the thermostats as a punishment. Yeah. So those three cases, they kind of map out a pattern and abuse of mm. temperature. But for those of us living in Europe, of course, the same thing is happening with migrants crossing the Mediterranean. There's many accounts of people succumbing or crossing the Alps from Italy into France or the delta areas between Turkey and Greece. So hypothermia is a, it is a common outcome. Yeah. I wanted to just ask quickly about, you mentioned forensic architecture. What is your relationship with forensic architecture? Because you are board chair mm-hmm. of the agency, right? So you've done several works in collaboration with them. Well, when the agency was first set up, it was AL and myself. This is like back in 2011. So I worked with forensic architecture for many years, and then I moved over to the teaching side of the program at Goldsmiths. And then um, continue to work very actively. So the investigations I would have worked on were forensic architecture investigations, whereas when I was um, developing the cold cases, I thought these are cases that I could really um, utilize the insights and skills of forensic architecture because Mm -hmm. it was about the challenge of modeling um, temperature. And because these were all cases where there was like witness testimony of one kind or another, there was a clear human rights violation. So Mm -hmm. it really made sense for me to work in collaboration with FA on those three cases. In some way, this was much more about telling these sort of stories and trying to look at the ways in which the politics of temperature had been operating in these cases. Mm -hmm. So... So moving on to the the sort of closing section, I wanted to start asking if there's been any artists or writers, past or present, who have particularly inspired you. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. I mean, filmmakers, of course. One of my all-time favorite films, hands down, is Patricio Guzman's Nostalgia for the Light. I don't know if you've seen that. No, I have to. I want to. It's on my... It's on my checklist, yeah. Yeah, so that's a film that has been uh, really inspiring for so many kind of reasons. And I think the influence of Patricio Guzman in the in the trilogy that he made, I think it definitely you can see the, the sort of resonances in my project because he is someone like Daisy who's trying to manage different scales. So... Mm-hmm. In Nostalgia for the Light, it's really the, the political violence of the dictatorship in Chile in the 1970s, mm-hmm. um, set against the backdrop of my, a much longer kind of history. So the film takes place in the Atacama Desert, yeah, and he brings different communities together. So like the mothers of the disappeared, who are like scraping the desert floor with very kind of mm. sort of crude implements to try yeah. and find the, the bones of of their loved ones, but the Atacama Desert, because it's like the driest place on earth, is also completely encrusted with technological infrastructures, like observatories. Yeah. 
So you have these scientists who are looking at the sort of fossil record of the universe. So they're looking into deep time yeah. in the same place that the women are looking for records and traces from the 1970s. And you yeah. sort of have these two incommensurate histories that are mediated by this desert landscape. And so he does this really beautiful job of telling these stories and he creates these narrative arcs between say the calcium that is in our bodies that was consequence of the Big Bang, like at the yeah. origins of the universe. And all of that is mediated by this planar geography of this Atacama Desert. So it's a beautiful, beautiful film. It's and definitely got that two bodies idea, isn't it? The the sort of overlapping of the first and second body as totally. well. Totally, yeah. Um, in terms of uh, writers, Sven Lindquist is someone I really um, admire, and he's considered maybe of an experimental historian. But yeah. he too is trying to craft histories from these tiny little sort of fragments. In the book, I'm thinking about exterminate all the brutes to the genocidal violence that's taking place in the Congo. Yeah. And somehow he forges these connections to like the invention of a rubber bicycle tube in Scotland. How do they connect? When the bicycle tube gets invented by this person who's looking at his son's bicycle mm -hmm. and invents the inflatable rubber tube to make his bicycles were kind of unwieldy with their solid tires, that invention meant that in the next year the rubber exports from Congo increased tenfold because suddenly there is this whole demand for rubber that hadn't existed. Yeah. And so rubber exports in relationship to King Leopold's like reign of terror in the Congo. What he doesn't do is connect the relationship. He gives us two separate facts and we as a reader have to understand how do you go from bicycle tire in Scotland to the genocides of the Congo through this mediating material of rubber. Right, and you said also he's retracing Conrad's footsteps, isn't yes, that right? Yes, I mean, from... the title of the book comes from Joseph Conrad. He, he also goes on a journey, so I realize someone like Daisy, like these these writers that are going on journeys to find things out, and Sven Lindquist really wants to like understand like what are the places that Conrad moved through, who did he meet, so there's this constant interplay with this sort of literary history, political history, which for him is very at the heart of what has happened in 20th century Europe. Mm. He wants to understand that and to understand the Holocaust and the genocides of Europe. One has to then look at the ways in which the colonial empires and the colonial regimes were sort of operating. So kind of going into the heart of darkness through a bicycle tire almost as a sort of jumping off point for making connections. I mean, it's just one example of many in the way yeah. that he structures the books. This is what takes me back to sort of like Chantal Ackerman. The sort of minor drama of the invention of the bicycle tire is connected to these major forces, yes. right? Yeah, I love that. I'm definitely going to look that up. But in the meantime, where can we see your work coming up? I know you've got a few projects, shows going on this year. Tell us where we can catch them. Cold Rights is going to be in an um, exhibition at the Barbican called Resistors, which is looking at uh, women, resistance, and ecology. The cold cases will be in both Laboral in Spain and also in the Backlight 
festival in Finland, I think, quite soon. That's June, I think, the Backlight Festival in Finland. Yeah, and then the Ice Core documentary um, is showing in an exhibition in Korea this summer as well. And then another piece that is a whole other strand of my work, which deals with sort of nuclear cultures, which is called Delay Decay. Mm -hmm. um, that is going to be in the Dunkirk Triennale, and that's much more of an installation, and it's mm. more of my sort of photographic practice, where some of the others are video and film based. Amazing. Well, if anyone is in those places, and definitely keep an eye out at the Barbican, because that sounds really incredible. So thank you. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Susan, for being on Art Fictions. It's been a pleasure to have you. It's been Thank you, listeners, and also thanks to today's guest, Susan Shookley, and to our lovely host, Elizabeth Fullerton. Art Fictions was recorded by Andy Amir Shah, and the unabridged film can be viewed on YouTube at Cubit Community Radio. For this abridged podcast, the music was written and performed by Griffin Knipe, while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created our logo. Happy listening, reading, seeing, and making until next time. <laughs>